This is different. I'm used to seeing children when I look out and not <laughs> lots of adults. Okay, if you all could please stand for the reading, the word. We're going to be in Nehemiah 4. Um, at last, the wall was completed to half its height around the entire city, for the people had worked with enthusiasm. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs, Ammonites, and Ashdodites heard that the work was going ahead and that the gaps in the wall of Jerusalem were being repaired, they were furious. They all made plans to come and fight against Jerusalem and throw us into confusion. But we prayed to our God and guarded the city day and night to protect ourselves. Then the people of Judah began to complain. The workers are getting tired and there is so much rubble to be moved. We will never be able to move the wall by ourselves. You can be seated. How are we doing this morning? Everybody good? Happy Father's Day to everybody. I say it every week. I leaned over to Pastor Joe just a second ago when you were singing your tails off in that last song that I'm loving being together for this one service in the summer. We did this uh, just to emphasize family, that church is more than a service, it's a family. And the more services you have, the harder it is to get to know the family. We will be going back to two services when school kicks back in. We just have to for space and logistics. But at least for these eight weeks in the summer, it's great to be together. Uh, breakfast this morning and, and all the activities, lunch uh, last week, and I'm just loving it. Love seeing the student section over here. Had an awesome week at camp this week. Andrew and I got to tag along and act like uh, teenagers for a week. Uh, but just an awesome week. They'll talk about a little bit of that at the, uh, at the end. But um, yeah, just loving being together and I love that you're here. Again, happy Father's Day. Thanks for choosing to be in church on Father's Day. I think there's kind of an assumption sometimes that on Mother's Day, uh, you know, families go to church because, you know, it's like your gift to your mom. But dads, it would have been easy for you to come up with something else to do today, but you decided to come to church. And I think that's a great thing and uh, an awesome model for your family, example for your family. So thanks for coming. All right. My name is Jason, by the way, if I didn't introduce myself, I'm the pastor here. And we've been taking the last uh, several weeks just to teach through an Old Testament book, uh, the book of Nehemiah. It's written by the guy, Nehemiah. It's his kind of memoir or journal entries. And we've been calling this series, How to Begin Again, Again. And the reason we threw the extra again in there is because... Anything worthwhile in your life, you don't just try one time. You try and you fail, you try and you fail, you try and you fail, you get discouraged, you try again, hopefully you try again, you talk yourself into it, then you, you know, convince yourself that you're an idiot forever thinking you could do it, and then you try again, and again, and again, and again. Proverbs tells us that the godly fall seven times, but they get back up again, and so this has just been a series for us about rebuilding things that were ruined, that's what Nehemiah did, and just taking some principles uh, Romans tells us in the New Testament, Romans tells us that we have these scriptures in the Old Testament. We have these stories in the Old Testament to give us encouragement and hope. And the book of Nehemiah is, a, is about a lot more than just building things in our lives. It's about a lot more than just leadership or uh, rebuilding. It's got all kinds of context to Jewish history and all those things. That's very important. And maybe we'll teach that again at another time. But really what we're doing over this period of time is we're just drawing out some principles that can help any of us who are trying to try again to build something that feels ruined. Maybe it's our marriage, maybe it's the financial uh, prospect of our life, our, our family, our physical health, but especially our spirituality, especially our faith in Jesus and where we feel like we are um, with our faith. And so, so far we've learned about taking ownership. No more excuses. We're gonna take ownership for where we are and the things that are ruined. We've learned about asking for God's help. We've learned about secrecy, about keeping things in our heart instead of sharing them with everybody. 
Uh, we've learned that our work is for God's glory. Last week, we learned about how to be a non-anxious presence in an overly anxious society. If you weren't here for that, I would encourage you to go back uh, and listen to that. But today, our verses teach us an important principle about enthusiasm. Everybody say enthusiasm. 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 I am married to the most enthusiastic person that's ever been created by God. She should probably be preaching this message because she takes the enthusiasm level of our home up uh, a lot. If it was just me, there wouldn't be a lot of enthusiasm, but it's her. And so maybe she should be preaching this, but here I am uh, talking about enthusiasm today. And the verses that, um, that Natalie read for us, it says that the wall was completed to half its height around the entire city because, and you could throw a lot of things in there, because they were skilled, because they had a good plan, because they had a good leader, all those things would be true. But it says that the reason they were able to complete what they had completed is because the people had worked with enthusiasm, enthusiasm. And so if you want to rebuild something that's ruined, it's going to require enthusiasm. It is. It is. It's going to require enthusiasm. Let me tell you what won't help, being critical. There, there's time for, for being critical. There's time to critique things, to try to get better. Um, and, and that's fine. But you're not going to rebuild what's ruined, being overly critical. Let me tell you what won't do much good. Cynicism. It's not cute. It's not funny. It's just sad. It's not helpful. Being negative is pointless. It doesn't get you anywhere. It just rallies together all the people who like to be negative and they don't get anything done because they talk about what's not working. If you wanna rebuild something that's ruined, you are going to have to make the choice to be enthusiastic about what it is that you are trying to accomplish. This is true for everybody, even if you're not a believer, even if your faith is not in Jesus, this is true for you. But as Christians, this should be our, our theme. This should be our message. We should, we should corner the market on enthusiasm because we have the joy of the Lord in our hearts because of what Jesus did, no matter how bad it is around us, no matter how bad it is that we're facing, it cannot take our joy because of Jesus. Now, joy and enthusiasm are not the same thing. As a Christian, joy uh, cannot be taken from us. We have to give it away because we have Jesus, we have joy. Enthusiasm does come and go. It, it, it is affected by the things that are happening around us. But as Christians, man, we should be, if we decide we're gonna do something, if we decide we're gonna lead something, if we decide we're gonna rebuild something, the very fact that Jesus' name is attached to it, that the Spirit of God lives in us should bring a different level or a different kind of enthusiasm than someone who, who doesn't have Jesus. I've mentioned it before, but one of my favorite classic novels Andrea got me to read last year that has now become one of the recurring reads for me is the classic novel Frankenstein. I love it so much about it that I love, but there is this great line from Captain Walton and in, in early in the book in a line to his sister. And I, when I read it the first time, I just, I underlined it because as a pastor, I felt like it like resonated with me, but I would be willing to bet as a mom or a dad or a business owner or an administrator, a team captain, I'd be willing to bet it resonates with you too. This is what he says. Uh, Walton says, my courage and my resolution is firm, but my hopes fluctuate. 
and my spirits are often depressed. I'm about to proceed on a long and difficult voyage, the emergencies of which will demand all my fortitude. I'm required not only to raise the spirits of others, but sometimes to sustain my own when theirs are failing. If you're a business owner, coach, administrator, parent, you know this feeling that not only are you trying to keep your enthusiasm up, but it also falls to you to keep everyone else's enthusiasm up too. Come on, parents, riding in the car on the way to whatever you've paid a lot of money to go to, you turn around and you tell the kids, we're going to have fun. Right? We are having fun today, you know? Anybody else car like that? Okay. It, it, it falls to you when everyone else's morale is low and things are down. When the, when the critical people and the cynical people and the negative people are, are speaking up and morale is low, not only are you having to keep your enthusiasm up, but you got to go around and keep everybody else's enthusiasm up too. And Nehemiah faced this as well. And no matter who you are or what you're doing, you can be sure that somewhere along the way, you will lose your enthusiasm. Did you hear me? Let me say it one more time. No matter how much you love Jesus, no matter how good you are at saving money, no matter how skilled you are with tools, no matter how many leadership principles you know, no matter how patient you are, how much vision you have, somewhere along the way, multiple points along the way, you will lose enthusiasm. Seth Godin, maybe you're familiar with that name. He's a marketer, business guy, but he, he has many books, but in, in the short book called The Dip, he, he calls this thing that we're describing right now, The Dip. The Dip, it's, it's when you are not getting the results from the effort. I got an image from the book I threw up there, but it's where you're putting in the effort, but you're not getting results you used to have. Godin says the dip is the place that everyone eventually comes to. It's the experience you have after you've started something, but before you feel like you've really accomplished what you set out to do. And this is what he says. This is a quote. He says, at the beginning, when you first start something, it's fun. It's interesting. And you get plenty of good feedback from people around you, and it keeps you going. Whatever your new thing is, it's easy to stay engaged in it. And then the dip happens. The dip is the long slog between starting and mastery. The dip is the difference between the easy beginner technique and the more useful expertise. The dip is the long stretch between beginner's luck and real accomplishment. The dip is after the excitement of starting has faded, but the finish line looks farther away than you thought it would. I thought about a couple examples of this in my own life, but I think this can relate to everybody. But I thought about like when you try to lose weight, Come on, like those first three days, you're judging everybody else's what they're eating. You know, you've been dieting 48 hours and you're like, can you believe what people eat? You know what I mean? Um, and you're doing awesome. But then the enthusiasm wears off and you hit the dip and, and, and it doesn't feel like, you know, you're getting, you're up on the scale, even though you should be down or you didn't lose anything or, you know, whatever it is or... Um, a home remodel project. Anybody ever lost any enthusiasm doing a home remodel? It's going to be amazing. You've Instagrammed and Pinterest like a thousand things, and this is going to look awesome. And if you've hired somebody, you know, they're not showing up. And if you're doing it yourself, there's mess everywhere, and you hit the dip. You're not as excited as when you started, and it seems like you're never going to be able to finish. Learning a new skill 
The dip is after you've started a new job, but then you feel stuck at that job. So you start the job and you tell all your friends, like, I finally found a place that treats me with respect and just treats me right. And I just love, I can't believe I worked anywhere else. Like, I will work here forever. And then, you know, six weeks later, you're like, I don't know. I just don't know if this is the place for me. And it's the dip. It's after you've started dating, but now you feel bored with the relationship, right? Every joke's funny initially. Now it's annoying, you know? They're telling you stories they've already told you, but they don't realize they've talked about it already, right? And, and you, 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 you're like, is, I thought I was in love, but now I don't know and I want some space, but does that mean we're not in love? And how come every relationship feels this way? It's the dip. It's after you've paid down some debt, but you still feel like it's gonna take forever. And we could keep going, these examples, the dip, it's when the excitement of the start has worn off, but the finish line seems too far away. And I want everybody to listen to me. This is a natural part of any endeavor where you don't have the energy or excitement you had in the beginning. Please hear me. You're not doing something wrong because it's not as exciting as it was when you started. It doesn't mean you're doing something wrong. It doesn't mean you have to break up. Maybe you need to break up. Doesn't mean you should get divorced. Doesn't mean you should change sports teams because your kid, you know, whatever. It doesn't, it doesn't mean that you should scrap the project. It, does, it, does, it doesn't mean you're doing something wrong. Now, Godin in his book talks about strategic quitting and reactive quitting, and we don't have time to talk about that, but he says, sometimes you do need to quit, but you don't ever want to quit reactively in the dip because you're not thinking straight. Right, right, right. There is a good kind of quitting where you have your priorities and you're thinking about your life, but it's not in the dip. And I would say most of the people I talk to who are asking for guidance or something like that, they, they're really in the dip. And so they're just disoriented and they're questioning everything. And that's when they want to quit. And I know we know this, but I think we forget it because we're such a generation of quitters and quick fixers that we have started to believe that new is better than loyal. Oh, wow. And just hear me for a second. New is exciting. New cars smell awesome. New's great, but loyal's better. I promise you, your 25th wedding anniversary will feel better than your third wedding reception. I promise. Promise. You may be in the dip right now. You may want to throw in the towel. You may think they are so funny, or they think you're so funny, or they're not like the person you're married to, or that boss is. And I get it. Of course, outside of marriage and the covenant we make with God, there are times where we make strategic moves. But let me just talk to all the married couples in the room for a second. New will not fix what's wrong with you. Stay committed to what you committed to. You'll get through it. Give it to Jesus. Find some people who will walk with you and love you and stay connected into the church. But don't think that new will fix, because it doesn't. It just costs more money and more pain. And so we should never assume that because something isn't as fun or as exciting, that it means we need to quit. And this is especially true when it comes to our faith. We've talked about a lot of other examples 
Whether you're a Christian or not, you can relate to those. But especially, I'm talking to everybody right now who's a Christian, everybody whose faith is in Jesus. If you plan on following Jesus for any extended period of time, you need to be prepared for seasons where your prayers don't feel as effective, church feels less impactful, and reading your Bible seems pointless. It doesn't mean you don't love Jesus. It doesn't mean God has abandoned you. It doesn't mean you're not saved. It it just means that you're a human being with factors at play in your life that are affecting where you are emotionally and spiritually. The Bible is filled with people who lose their enthusiasm, but don't lose their faith. And, and uh, we, so many of you, you know, have gotten saved here, committed your life to Jesus here. Maybe this is your first kind of church experience, or maybe you came back first time in a long time, you got baptized. I know we got a lot of students over here who, you know, loving some Jesus at summer camp. Come on. It's like, like, Nothing like Jesus at summer camp, right? You fall in love with Jesus and someone else at summer camp every time. That's what happens. And they're both awesome. But then you come home. You come home. And home is not like summer camp, you know? And temptations are there and fighting with your parents and drama and friends. And, and you can think like, oh, well, it just, it, it's not, it's not going to work. It's, it, 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 it must have just been a phase. No, what you're going through is a phase. Your faith is real. The commitment you made, what you felt is real. And so the Apostle Paul in Romans, he said it this way. He said, never be lazy, but work hard and serve the Lord enthusiastically. This is not just a personality thing, an extrovert, introvert thing a Myers-Briggs or Enneagram number thing, that for every one of us whose faith is in Jesus, who follows the Lord, we are commanded, we are instructed and taught in the Bible that we should work hard and serve the Lord enthusiastically. Rejoice in our confident hope. That's why we can be enthusiastic. Be patient in trouble and keep on praying. And there will be seasons in our faith and in every area of our life where we have to work hard to keep our enthusiasm, to rally, to rally. And maybe you're here again, parent, you know, struggling with a relationship with a kid or a marriage or a job, and and we got to rally. We got to rally, and I get that. And so, so up until this point, what I've been trying to tell you is, is that dips and loss of enthusiasm is a natural part of any endeavor that you're going through. And I want you to hear that. It doesn't mean you're doing something wrong, okay? You with me on that? Okay? There's a natural dip that happens in our faith in any endeavor. And, comma, and, there are also things that we do to contribute to a loss of enthusiasm. Okay? So I don't want you to hear me say today that if you have lost enthusiasm, that it's all your fault. Because it may be the natural ebb and flow in the course of life as a human being and whatever it is, that the, it's not as exciting as when you started. Okay. And we also contribute to the loss of enthusiasm. And there are, there are more that I could give you, and I don't have time to really deep dive into all these. But what I want to do just kind of taking some principles from Nehemiah and what we're trying to rebuild is for the time I got left, I just want to throw five at you. I'm going to call these five enthusiasm killers. Five enthusiasm killers in your life. And I'm specifically talking about your faith. Some of these only apply to your faith, but I think you could probably apply most of them to other areas of your life as well. 
So we have the natural dip that happens in life, but then we also have the self-inflicted wounds that we do to ourselves that cause us to leak enthusiasm. And I'm gonna give those to you. Five enthusiasm killers. Number one is this. Number one is sin. Number one is sin. We're talking about our faith. And when I say sin, I don't mean the sinful nature that we all have that causes us to sin in our daily experiences. We say all the time around here, you're not a sinner because you sin. You sin because you're a sinner. Like as, until Jesus comes back, there's a sinful nature inside of us that's trying to sabotage our life and it wins a lot, okay? I'm not talking about just the daily kind of grind of, of sin and sinful nature in our life. What I'm talking about is, is, is I'm talking about the, the secret sins, the private struggles, the worst, most humiliating, embarrassing things that we do that people don't know about. I'm talking about those. Every time we run to those sins, those choices, those actions, those experiences, we are leaking enthusiasm in our soul and in our faith. And we do them to cope or we do them to escape or we do them because we're bored or whatever reason we do them, in the end, it only makes our despair worse. It steals life from us. And I know in the moment it doesn't, in the moment it gives us a dopamine hit, or in the moment it gives us a pleasure or whatever it is that we're doing, or it helps us to you know, take our mind off whatever it is that's causing us anxiety. I get all of that. But when that initial, or when that part is over, we are worse off and feel worse off about ourselves than before we did what we did to cope or escape. I think I've shared this before. I don't even remember where I heard it, but somebody said, um, um, well, no, I just went blank. Never mind. <laughs> I haven't shared it, I guess. Okay. Um, but what happens when we do these things is, is we, we begin to think there's something wrong with us. Guilt and shame. That's what it is. I probably shared that before. Guilt says I did something wrong. Shame says there's something wrong with me. And so every time you go back, what is it? Is it Proverbs or Ecclesiastes where it talks about a dog returning to its vomit? I never got that until I owned a dog a year ago. And so now that's gross. And, he, and the dog does it sometimes. And that's what we do too. And, and so it's not just the guilt of doing wrong. It's also the shame that comes along with why we can't stop doing what we swear we weren't going to do. And if you were friends with somebody or had a relationship with somebody who kept promising you they wouldn't do something and kept doing it, you wouldn't have enthusiasm about that relationship. Well, that's the relationship you have with yourself when it comes to these things. And so the first thing is sin. Psalm 32, one through five, David writing, and David had been through a little ordeal, sinful ordeal, sinful fall that he had had. And this is what David said. He said, oh, what joy for those whose rebellion is forgiven, whose sin is put out of sight. Yes, what joy for those whose record the Lord has cleared of sin, whose lives are lived in complete honesty. Look at what he says. When I, can, when I refused to confess my sin, I was weak and I was miserable and I groaned all day long. This is what happens when we keep private, uh, humiliating, embarrassing things inside. We've got to confess. We've got to have a community or people around us that we can be honest so that we're reminded we're not loved based on how good we are, but we're loved on, on what Jesus did for us and the commitment we make to one another. So that's the first one, sin. If you've got secret, humiliating, embarrassing, nobody knows about it type stuff, every time you go back, you're, you're gonna leak enthusiasm. No matter how jacked up for Jesus you get, when you go back, you start leaking enthusiasm. The second one, so we've got sin. The second one, enthusiasm killer, is comparison. Comparison. 
In his book, David and Goliath, Malcolm Gladwell talks about the power of comparison and how our minds play trick, tricks on us. And Gladwell asked this question in his book. He said, which do you think has a higher suicide rate? Countries who declare themselves to be very happy, like Switzerland, Denmark, Iceland, and the Netherlands, and Canada, or countries like Greece, Italy, Portugal, and Spain, whose citizens describe themselves as not happy at all? Which countries do you think would have a higher suicide rate? He says, surprisingly, the answer is the so-called happy countries. It's a phenomenon based on how all of us as human beings don't compare ourselves in broad context. For example, we don't say, well, I only make $25,000 a year, but in comparison to the whole world, I'm in the top, you know, 5% of all income earners. No, we say, I'm broke. I wish I had more money like my friend who just got a new car. And Gladwell says that if you're unhappy in a place where everyone else around you seems unhappy, you don't feel that bad about yourself. But if you feel depressed in a country where everyone seems to always have a smile on their face, you feel really bad about yourself. And so nothing will start zapping your enthusiasm for what God's trying to do in your life or how God's blessing your life or what God's doing in your family or your career, like looking around and comparing it to everyone else. And I, I know I've said this every week where I'm just like harping on social media, but I, they're lying. I promise it's not as great as it looks. Andrea and I are like, Andrea especially, but me too. Like we're, you know, we're moving into a new home. And so, you know, we've got all these ideas for how we want to fix it. Andrea showed me these pictures. And I was, every time I look at it, I'm like, nobody lives there. Nobody lives there. No way somebody lives in that house. We, we would break everything in there in five minutes. Like I'm convinced of it, you know? But we get these ideas. Like if I had that, if I had their life, if I had what they were doing, I would be happy they're not happy probably, which is why they're posting, but that's a whole nother thing. So I just, I want, I, I, what I'm trying to say to you is that you're never going to find the satisfaction you want in comparison, even if you compare yourselves to people who make you feel higher, because then you're just going to be critical and, and look down on people and that's not going to help. And here's what I've noticed. We never compare equal. We always compare up or down. You ever notice that? You don't ever find people who are exactly where you are and go, well, hey, here we are. You look at people who are above you and say, man, I wish I was them. Or you look at people below you and say, I'm glad I'm not them. That's the only way we ever compare is up and down. Never, never equal, right? Never equal. So as you think about your life, your home, your husband, your kids, your wife, your, your lawn, come on. You want to lose enthusiasm? Start keeping score and seeing if you're winning or losing. You'll always feel like the loser, I promise. Galatians 6.4, pay careful attention to your own work, for then you will get the satisfaction of a job well done, and you won't need to compare yourself to anyone else. You just won't. All right, um, that was comparison number two. Number three, five enthusiasm killers. Number three is negative people. Negative people. I don't really have much to say. They just zap all the enthusiasm out of you. And here, here's what I've noticed is that there's a difference between concerned people and critical people. Concerned people are concerned, but they hope they're wrong. Critical people hope they're right. So whatever they're critiquing in your life, they want to be able to say, I told you, concerned people go, I hope I'm wrong, but I'm concerned. And you have to have the discernment to know if someone is concerned for me, so they're speaking up, which probably took a lot of courage for them because they wouldn't want to speak up, but I'm going to listen because they're concerned versus, you know, critical guy who hasn't been happy about anything since 84. You know what I mean? So that guy or girl is 
they're not concerned. They just, it's not discernment for them. They just see the world through a pessimistic lens. But when you find somebody who isn't that way, but then has concerns, then you really need to listen to those people. And I know this is hard because some of them are in our family or holidays or we're married to them or uh, we work with, I, I get all of that. And I know we can't live in a bubble, but I, 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 I try very hard when I preach not to preach in a way like I've somehow accomplished it or done it, I promise. But if there is of this list, if there is one that I really pride myself and work really hard on, it's, it's avoiding negative people. And when people come to me and start gossiping, my first response is usually probably not. Whatever you just said, probably not. When somebody comes to me and says, you know, complaining about so-and-so, my first thought I try to make it be is like, there's another side to that. Maybe, maybe. I don't want to get caught up in the drama. I don't want to just nervously agree with people who are being critical or talking about other people. You know how that feels sometimes where people come to you and they like, can you believe that? And you're like, I know. You don't know, but you don't know what to say. So you're like, I know, yes. And then they say, Jason agrees, but I didn't agree. I just didn't know what to say. And so maybe this has happened to you. Maybe you've come to me and you've been negative about somebody in the church. And I was just like, hmm, I didn't know what to say, but I wasn't going to agree with you. Right? And so, you know, the phone calls you answer, the texts you respond to, the, the, the comments you leave, the, the people you spend your time with on the weekends, where you sit your desk, if you have a choice where you sit your desk. Listen, if you want to lose enthusiasm, hang around negative people and you will, you will start seeing the world they see, the way they see the world. But if I was to ask you right now, who are the two or three most influential people in your life who make you better? I guarantee you what they would all have in common is optimism, courage. They would be encouragers. I said I wasn't going to say nothing about negative people, but that's my talk about negative people. Here we go. Number four, what kills our enthusiasm? We're talking about enthusiasm killers. Number four, I just called it the grind. Or you could say not resting, but just the grind. Henry Thoreau was not a Christian, but he had some great observations about life. One of my favorite quotes, he says, we go more constantly and desperately to the post office. You may depend on it that the poor fellow who walks away with the greatest number of letters, proud of his extensive correspondence, has not heard from himself this long while. Love that. We go and we go and we go, and when we say we're resting, we're not really resting not our souls at least. But we convince ourselves of all these benefits of how we're getting ahead and how we're staying connected and how we're you know, grinding and hustling and, and it's gonna pay off on the side hustle down the road because we're playing the long game and all of these things. But instead of feeling more productive or affluent or connected, we are more anxious than ever before. We're more in hurry, we're more in debt, we're more emotionally bankrupt. There's all kinds of statistics I could share with you, like 18% of Americans use mood-altering substances every day. 40 million people a year experience impairment because of an anxiety. This is, I mean, this is because God created a rhythm for life. And you're either going to embrace it and enjoy the blessings of it, or you're going to keep hitting dead ends to where you're forced to embrace it because you don't rest. And I'm not saying that you get to dictate all your time or you get to dictate all your hours, but where we do have a choice. 
or even when we don't have a choice, like, well, you know, the kids had sports and I've got to go. I can even engage in that game differently. I can sit on the sideline and enjoy it and not critique it or get mad about it. Even when I don't have a choice, I can posture myself in a certain way to be restful or joyful instead of, um, you know, instead of uh, worn out for sure. Okay. And so the grind it requires us to rest. This is a spiritual principle. This is not a, yes, it's a mental health tool. And yes, it is a self-love tool. And all these things are true. But this, it has its very roots in Christianity. Before Christianity showed up, do you think like the warriors were saying, you know, six days on, seven, one day off? No, Jesus shows up. God creates, Jesus shows up. The Old Testament, the New Testament, the Sabbath, the rest it's, uh, it fills our tank back up. It fills our soul back up. Let me give you the last one. Number five, uh, five enthusiasm killers. The last one is just fear. It's just fear. And as I was looking at the list this week, thinking about the message, you know, when I got to fear, I thought, well, that's a little unfair because, you know, I can choose on the sin and I can choose on the comparison and I can choose on the negative people and I can choose on the rest. But it feels like with fear, like I can't necessarily choose that. And I understand I don't want anybody who struggles with anxiety or, or fear or um, even depression. I don't want you to feel like I'm saying like, well, you know, you just need to decide not to feel that way because there's nothing more annoying than feeling overwhelmed by fear and anxiety and someone telling you like, you just need to not. Like, man, why hadn't I thought about that, not feeling this way? <laughs> Brilliant. That goes back to number three. But anyway, <laughs> stop. Number three. The Bible does say that we can think on things that are lovely and pure and noble and worthy of praise. And, here's, and so here, here's what I want to say to everyone who struggles with fear, because I know that there is, I, I, I am a very fearful person. I struggle with uncertainty. Anytime I feel like something's uncertain, there's an anxiety that really comes from deep inside of me that I'm learning more and more how to deal with and wrestle with. And so I just want you to know, I really can relate. And fear can look different ways for different people. Doesn't necessarily mean you're hiding under your bed or um, a lot of us are afraid, but we, we act out. And so we don't look afraid and I, I get all that. But here, here's what I want to say to you, if you are here and you say, man, I just I struggle my kids when they're not with me or, you know, when I'm, whatever it is, like, I'm just always afraid. There is a biblical principle or model that we can set our thoughts or fix our thoughts. And it doesn't mean that they don't get hijacked from time to time or more than we want it to be. But we can choose what we focus on. We can choose what our attention is set on and what we take in. We can choose what we read and what we don't read, watch and don't watch, talk about and don't talk about. And if you are having natural disposition to fear, it doesn't take much to trigger the crazy fears and anxiety going on inside of you. And so you gotta be very diligent to think on things that are worthy, honorable, worthy of praise, lovely, pure. So you got, you've gotta work hard to keep your enthusiasm because you're, not, you're choosing not to take in or talk to people who are constantly talking about whatever it is that's about to go wrong with the world or is going wrong with the world or why nothing, it goes back to number three, but why nothing will ever work or whatever it is, okay? And so please don't hear me saying that you're broken because you're afraid or anxious or that you don't love Jesus because you're afraid or anxious. If that's true, then I'm, I'm in trouble. 
But in the same way that the food I put into my body affects me or the same way that the, that the words from the Bible I put in affect my faith and those things, I, have, I am learning for me that I have to guard what comes in through my eyeballs and through my ears so that I don't spend so much time trying to control the world that I cannot control, which only makes me feel more fearful and anxious. Are you following what I'm saying? And so, man, it is crazy how I can wake up, you know, start the day fresh with a, with a fresh batch of enthusiasm and grab my stupid phone, you know, before 8.30. And at 8.37, I'm like out of enthusiasm, out of hope, out of optimism, critical, grouchy telling the kids, we're going to have fun today, right? <laughs> and it's just because I, I opened the door. I opened the door and I let it in, okay? Sin, comparison, negative people, no rest or the grind and fear. There's a natural dip and loss of enthusiasm in life. That's going to happen to everybody. But to the best of our ability, if we're going to lead, if we're going to rebuild things that are ruined, we have got to do our best and work our hardest to control the controllables, to control the things that we control. So we want to confess those secret sins that are pulling us down. We want to avoid all the things that are, are, are helping us to keep a scoreboard. We want to try to isolate, insulate ourselves from negative people. We want to put rhythms of rest in our life. And we want to set our thoughts and focus on things that are pure and lovely and noble and, and true and worthy of praise. And here's what I believe is true. I believe that if we made those commitments, that we would find ourselves having more enthusiasm about life, more optimism about life. We'd be a more encouraging person. We'd be a more joyful person. We'd be a lot more fun to be around. And I believe that, that the, the joy that is in us because of Jesus would begin to show itself. It's in there. It's in there somewhere. We need the Holy Spirit to help us pull it out, okay? I'm gonna pray for us and Kaylee and the team are gonna come and lead us um, in worship. And when that happens, uh, you're gonna have the opportunity to take communion if you'd like to do that. There'll be some stations set up. And I, as you're taking communion today, be reminded, the, the Bible says that for the joy set before him that our Savior, Jesus Christ, endured the cross, which sounds very oxymoronic. Like, how could the cross be joyful? But as you're taking communion today, be reminded that, that even things that we're going to face can have a joy attached to it or can have an enthusiasm attached to it if it has a purpose. And so Jesus came to this earth and he died on the cross and he was broken, his body was broken, his blood was shed for you and for me. And there's nothing exciting or enthusiastic or glamorous about that, but he did it. The joy comes from knowing that when he was finished and resurrected, that you and I would be able to have a relationship with God. And there's joy in that. So I'm gonna pray for us and the team's gonna lead us, all right? God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he saw joy and, 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 and purpose in the cross. God, I pray that you would help us to be a people that stand out, peculiar people who stand out, not because of uh, our talking or not because of, uh, of what we're against, but God, we would stand out because we are joyful people, enthusiastic people, working for your glory, building something that matters, rebuilding things that are ruined. 
that the joy of the Lord, the joy of the Spirit of God, the fruit of the Spirit in our lives would grow and be obvious to people who are paying attention that we, we are not the same as everyone else around us, that we have, we have you, we have joy, we have enthusiasm. God, we're, we want that, we want to experience that, and we need you to help us. I pray for every person today who's in the dip, every person who's thinking about quitting, every person, every couple who's thinking about throwing in the towel, every parent who's ready to give up. I pray for every person who's so discouraged that they, they don't see the purpose in their life or what they're trying to do. God, I pray that every person who's in the dip would just get a, a fresh dose of encouragement, a fresh dose of enthusiasm. We have great plans for our life. Where we are may not feel great right now, God, but you have great plans and purposes for our life. And you're not giving up on us, God, so help us not to give up on ourselves. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.